Good morning. It is a privilege to be up here preaching God's Word to you this morning. My name is Dan Mason, and I serve as a pastoral assistant here at Christ Church Westchester. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be today. I believe it's on page 975 of the Bibles uh, in the seat in front of you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Um, If you don't have one to call your own, then please take that with you today as our gift to you. Uh, I always say that our church will not be sad if we have to spend more money on Bibles to give away to people. So please feel free to take that. Familiarity with God's Word is a wonderful gift. And I would encourage all of us to continue to press on in reading and meditating on and memorizing God's Word. But there can be a danger sometimes in studying passages like this one in Galatians 5 that we may have memorized as a child or maybe even have cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere. You've probably heard a sermon or two on this passage in the past. Maybe you've done a Bible study on it, and that's great. Don't hear me saying that there is anything wrong with that, but I want to challenge us this morning as we approach this text anew not to kick back and think that we have completely mined the riches of this text in the past. Like its infinite, boundless author, each passage of God's Word is a bottomless well, allowing us to plunge ever deeper into its depths. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, still uses them to speak to us today. Our passage for this morning comes thematically right after the passage that Stephen preached for us last week. After Paul uses Abraham's two sons as an illustration of slavery and freedom, then he impresses upon the Galatians the fact that they are, in fact, free. Free from the constraints and the condemnation of the law through the finished work of Christ. We see that in Galatians 5, verse 1. But now... They have a choice in front of them. And Paul presents this choice in verse 13, which is just above the passage that we'll be studying this morning. The question is, what will the Galatians do with their freedom? What will they do with this newfound liberty that they have in Christ? Will they use it, like Jesus himself, to fulfill the law in loving one another? Or... Will they use it as an opportunity to indulge the sinful passions and desires of the flesh? Paul gives his thoughts on that question, beginning in verse 16. So let's read together Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that you would allow me to practice what I am preaching, that I would walk by the Spirit and depend completely upon you as we study your word together. Father, may the Spirit who inspired these words illuminate them in our understanding this morning, that we would not only come to understand you more, but that we would come to love you more as well. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get going, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page specifically with what freedom means. I'm going to use that term a lot, so we need to make sure that we actually see eye to eye with this idea of freedom because there's a lot, there's a lot of possibilities of what people could mean by freedom. So political philosophers recognize twin concepts of freedom called negative and positive liberty. So negative liberty is freedom from external constraints, freedom from anyone outside or above you telling you what you can and can't do. And positive liberty is the ability to act in a way that you desire without personal limitations based on your own circumstances or your means. So simply put, negative liberty is freedom from, and positive liberty is freedom to. Now, this is probably when you start thinking to yourself, Dan, that's a really interesting concept, but this is not a lecture on political philosophy, it's a sermon. And that's true. But the point is, piggybacking on what Stephen taught us last week, Paul is dealing with both legalism and license in this passage. Legalism is trying to make ourselves right with God based on our own good behavior. And license, or the other word that I'll use for it, antinomianism, which just means against the law, is the opposite. It's living with no moral considerations because God has already forgiven us of all of our sins. So to understand how Paul speaks to both of these groups at the same time, we have to look at verses 16 and 18 side by side. So let's read both of those together. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we need to notice how these are parallel statements that Paul is making here. Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, they're the same thing, right? We can, we can agree on that. He's, he's putting forward the same concept. But since this passage has such a clear dichotomy between two different ways of living, we can conclude that gratifying the desires of the flesh and being under the law are also the same thing. Or at least they both belong to the way of life that is contrary to walking in the Spirit. So at the same time, Paul is telling the legalists, yes, we have been freed from the law, and we're not bound by it anymore. Hear that negative liberty? Freed from the constraints of the law. But he's also telling the antinomians at the same time, we have been freed to truly obey the commands of God, not indulge the passions and desires of our sinful flesh. So there's both negative liberty and positive liberty on display here in this passage. And that's the point that Paul is making. That's the point that I want to focus on this morning. Walking in the Spirit not only frees us from living in the flesh, but also frees us to live in a way that pleases God. I'll say that again for all the note takers, and you'll hear it again many times throughout this sermon. The main idea of the passage is this. Walking in the Spirit not only frees us from living in the flesh, but frees us to live in a way that pleases God. And we'll explore that idea together by examining four aspects of this passage. First, freedom from. Second, freedom to. Third, freedom's struggle. And fourth, freedom's victory. So, freedom from, freedom to, freedom's struggle, and freedom's victory. So first, let's take a look at freedom from. Let's read verses 19 through 21. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a striking list. This is Paul's longest list in the New Testament of the works of the flesh. I mean, we read from Ephesians 5 earlier in the service, and there was a list there. But this is even longer. This is even more exhaustive. And yet Paul 
says, and things like these. It's not even a complete list, but he's listing all of these things. But we take a look at them, and they line right up with how we would understand uh, living in the flesh to look like. We would look at this and say, yeah, that's what happens when we let evil and sinful desires run rampant. You get all of these things in this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies. Yikes. This is humanity at its worst in Paul's words. But sandwiched in there are also a number of things that also kind of stick out by being tame by comparison. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I think we would miss Paul's point, however, if we try to split this list up into two camps of greater and lesser sins, because all are equally the result of living in sinful passions and the desires of the flesh. All are evil and wicked in God's sight. All damage the people around us. And worst of all, all are sins that Christians are capable of committing. Let's not forget the audience that Paul is writing this book to. He's writing to a church. It's a confused and divided church, as the rest of the letter makes clear, but it is a group of Christians nonetheless. In that context, we have to read, it's in that context that we have to read his statement at the end of verse 21, where Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think Paul's aim is to warn his readers about other people. He's not saying, stay away from those things out there. He's warning, watch out for those things in here. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whether you're sitting in the church this morning or you're out on the street. Either way, Paul is saying, these things lurk in the human heart. And you need to be aware of them. Examine your hearts. Do you find idolatry, jealousy, and envy? Then let this be a warning to you. Examine your lives. Do you see sexual immorality, fits of anger, drunkenness? Then heed these words. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul says things like these and such things, but this list should give us pause this morning. As we examine our own hearts, do you find yourself regularly envious of the blessings that God has given to others, believing that God clearly made a mistake by giving them what you so obviously deserve? Do you find yourself looking for an escape from reality, whether through alcohol or drugs or anything else that can help take the edge off from the difficulties of everyday life? Maybe it's pornography use, which fits multiple things on this list. The crazy thing is, those are not crazy possibilities. It's easy to dismiss this list as humanity at its worst, but as we dig in, we find ourselves in this list. There is no doubt that these sins exist in our hearts this morning. And they're exactly what God's word is calling us to forsake. Now, we must let the weight of this passage sit on our shoulders this morning. The challenge of Paul to the Galatians is the same challenge to us this morning. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, Paul's appeal is the same. If you find your life characterized by this list of works of the flesh, the word of God is clear. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are living a life that manifests the work of the flesh, not the work of the Spirit. And you would be right to consider whether or not God has actually changed your heart. The Apostle John reiterates this idea in an extended passage in 1 John 3. I'll just read some of it. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, him being God. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. These are heavy words this morning. And of course, we need to be careful with how we understand and apply this passage. Are Paul and John saying that if we sin, we have no hope of heaven? No, because that nullifies the gospel itself. It's because we sin and because we will continue to sin throughout the rest of our lives that God the Son came to earth in human flesh, lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve, rose again from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for his people even now. Rather, what we make a practice of doing is an external manifestation of an internal reality of what kind of person we really are. And by that, I do not mean a good person or a bad person, because Scripture is incredibly clear on that fact. No one is good but God alone. We are all in the same category as far as good and bad. So Scripture isn't thinking in terms of good and bad, but in terms of dead or alive, in the flesh or in the spirit. And we show which one is true of us by how it works itself out in our lives. Are we characterized by list number one in this passage or list number two? Are we truly freed from the power of the flesh or do we show by our actions that we are in fact still slaves? Either because we have not been given the freedom of the spirit in the first place or because we are using that freedom as license to return to the works of the flesh. Imagine someone emerging from a long prison sentence, finally being free and saying, I'm so glad that I am out of there. I'm never going back. I hated everything about my experience in there. From now on, I'm going to live completely differently. What I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a tiny house and I'm never going to go outside. And I'm going to interact with people maybe about an hour a day, only over the phone. And I'm going to spend most of my time reading and exercising. He would say, you're just building yourself another prison cell. You are not living as a free man, but you are using your freedom to go back into bondage. And that is what those who are using the freedom in Christ are doing. They're taking freedom and giving it back. They're saying, I would rather be enslaved by the sinful passions of the flesh. This is crucial for understanding Paul's argument here in Galatians. In relation to the law, Christians have been given negative liberty. We are free from the law. But we should not understand that as positive liberty to go live however we want. Because we have been given freedom not to go back into sin, but to walk away from that sin. To live as free men. The Apostle Peter sums it up perfectly in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Have we ever considered that servanthood is true freedom? That's a very counterintuitive concept for us. But we have been freed to serve our God because we have been freed from the passions of the flesh, and the constraints of the law. We're freed from sin. We're freed from the flesh. We're freed from the law. But Paul doesn't stop there. He's not simply content to tell the Galatian church to stop sinning. That's only half of the equation. Puritan commentator Matthew Henry perfectly sums up this hinge between our negative liberty from the law and positive liberty to the Spirit this way. He says, it's not enough that we cease to do evil, but we must learn to do well. Our Christianity obliges us not only to die to sin, but to live to righteousness. Not only to oppose the works of the flesh, but to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit too. Walking in the Spirit not only frees us 
from living in the flesh, but frees us to live in a way that pleases God. So what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in the Spirit, to live in a way that pleases God? That brings us to our second point, freedom to. Let's start reading in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If all we had was negative liberty, then we would have no hope of looking anything like this list of attributes that Paul lays out here. We would walk away from the sins of the flesh, but that would be it. By ourselves, we don't have what it takes to pursue righteousness. But God's work in us is not a halfway measure. He's not just content to take away our sinfulness, but to actively grow us in righteousness. Now, Paul doesn't present this list of fruit as the goal of the Spirit-filled life. It's the evidence. Jesus clearly explains this idea in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he says, You will recognize my people by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. If you hang a bunch of grapes on a thorn bush, then you might fool someone who knows nothing about grapevines into thinking that it is one. But you're not changing anything about the thorn bush. You haven't changed the true nature of the plant. Thorn bushes produce thorns, and grapevines produce grapes. And they do that not by trying really hard, not by doing their best, but they do it because that's who they are. That's what they do. While it's not as obvious in our English translation, the word fruit in verse 22 is actually singular. Paul does not discuss the fruits of the Spirit, but the singular fruit. All of these things come together as the result of the Spirit's work in the life of a believer. It's a package deal. They come together or they don't come at all. Because it's not nine things. It's one thing called holiness. All the attributes in verses 22 and 23 fall under the larger umbrella of holiness. The Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of believers is what theologians call sanctification, which literally means making holy. The Spirit does not cultivate goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, per se, as individual attributes. But holiness, which manifests itself in many ways, including the fruit that Paul lists here. Which is to say, if you're naturally a very gentle person, but lack any self-control, then you can't point to your gentleness and say, oh, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Because it's not. The fruit of the Spirit comes as a package deal. Gentleness in your life, as it grows and becomes more apparent in our lives, along with all of the other things that Paul lists here, show that we are truly walking in the Spirit and truly becoming sanctified through his power. It's interesting what Paul puts first in this list, love. I read many scholars who argued that love's primacy in this list comes from its status as the grounding for all of the others. Someone living in love with others looks a lot like a joyful, patient, kind person. According to verse 14, right above our passage, Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the law doesn't disappear from Paul's equation just because we're not under its constraints anymore. Instead of trying to justify ourselves before God by following its commands, Christians now can actually truly fulfill the law by loving one another. True fulfillment of the law looks like exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, which comes not from our own effort, but because we have been made new. 
Again, the key distinction here that keeps us from falling back into legalism is that we have already been made right with God through the work of Christ. And we are therefore free to obey God's commands with joy and with thanksgiving. And we do that by loving one another. Look at verse 26. In a way very different than how we would anticipate, Paul tells us we walk in the Spirit by not becoming conceited or provoking one another or envying one another. So let's not forget where we started. Paul has told the Galatians that they are free, telling them to live as free men, as children of the promise. And he's given them this dichotomy of using their freedom to live in the flesh or to walk in the Spirit, to serve others. So he comes back to that idea in verse 26. How do we walk in the Spirit? Well, first off, we know how we don't do it. The works of the flesh, right? That's clearly not walking in the Spirit. But in addition to the fruit that we see in verses 22 and 23, those who are in the Spirit love one another, living together, not with envy or pride, but with patience, with gentleness and self-control. The Spirit's work in our lives is manifested in community. It's not just an abstract list of principles, but it's worked out in how we treat one another. Look again at the list of the flesh, the works of the flesh. They are all self-focused. They're all about getting what I want right now, even at the cost of other people. The flesh says, me, me, me. But the Spirit is saying, but what about them? Instead of using others to gratify my desires, how can I lay down my desires to serve others? It's the complete opposite mindset. So are we, as individual Christians, or as a church, marked by our desire to give of ourselves to serve others, or to take from others to serve ourselves? Paul is saying to the degree that you are pursuing your own selfish desires, you are not walking in the Spirit. You are walking in the flesh. And that is not a life pleasing to God. Now our hearts, again, are tempted to two extremes in light of what Paul presents here. If we see the fruit of the Spirit as a list of virtues to be pursued, then we will either be puffed up with pride in our own performance, or we will be deflated with discouragement because of how far short we fall. We either think, wow, I am doing such a good job. Those words describe me perfectly. Or, I look nothing like that. I'm doing a terrible job. But that's legalism. Both ways, creeping up in our hearts once again. If we look at the fruit of the Spirit this way, what are we doing? We're putting ourselves back under the slavery of the law, which is exactly what Paul is telling us not to do in this passage. Walking in the Spirit not only frees us from living in the flesh, but frees us to live in a way that pleases God. In Romans 8, 8, Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So try as we might to live in the flesh and do our best. Nothing we can do in the flesh pleases God. We can't do it. But walking in the Spirit gives us the freedom to live a life that is pleasing to God. We can do right. We can grow in holiness. We can grow in righteousness. We can continue to be sanctified. Have you ever considered that as a privilege of our status as God's people? That we are free to please God with our lives. Those who are in the Spirit are righteous deeds tainted by sin as they are, which the Bible is clear about. They are still genuinely pleasing and beautiful to our God. What a privilege we have to live in such a way. Imagine a small child learning to walk. Has a father ever seen his daughter take her first steps and say, that was terrible. That was pathetic. I am such a better walker than you are. You should be ashamed of yourself. What kind of monster would that be? be terrible. Rather, he delights 
in and celebrates the imperfect attempts of his child, not because she's such an objectively good walker compared to the rest of humanity, but because he delights in her as his daughter. And he's so proud of the ways that she's growing and learning. God, as our loving Father, delights in our stumbling steps as we walk in the Spirit. Now make no mistake, these attempts are not what make us right with God. We've got to keep pushing back on legalism here. But because we have been made right with God, we are free to stumble as we walk in the Spirit, knowing that our God delights in us. We are free to please God in how we, verse 25, walk in step with the Spirit. The image that Paul is using here is one of walking in the footsteps of one who came before. It's almost like footprints in the snow that you're putting your foot in as you follow behind where someone else went. We imitate God as we walk in step with the Spirit. We please Him as we care for one another and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There is no law against these things because these are the things that please God. And there is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8.1. As an aside, I kept finding so many connections in this passage to Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. I started putting them in, and then I realized I was very quickly going to have a sermon based on two passages, which was not the goal for this morning. But I would encourage you this afternoon, sometime this week, sit down, read all of Romans 7 and 8, and you will be astonished at the connections between this passage and that one. Galatians, uh, scholars believe, is probably Paul's first letter that we have in the New Testament. And Romans comes a fair amount later, and so it's a beautiful thing to see the theology that he puts forth in this passage expanded and um, broadened and discussed deeper in Romans 7 and 8. So, Just as an aside, I would encourage you to do that. It would be a huge blessing to you in light of this sermon. But back to the passage. I cannot emphasize enough that the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of the Spirit's work in our hearts, not a goal to be attained or a pattern to conform ourselves to according to our own effort and our own personal morality. So the question you might be asking now is, well, what if I want to grow in those areas? What if I see myself as a not particularly self-controlled person? Can I just focus on that in particular? I think you can. I don't think this passage is saying that you can't, but I think that this is a different process than maybe what that question is asking. We can seek God's help in pursuing righteousness in specific ways, and we should, through the power of the Spirit. But the means of producing fruit more abundantly is allowing God's Spirit to work in us and through us. It's delighting in God and His work in our lives. All Christians are being sanctified. God has promised that. But the difference between a Christian who's along for the ride and a Christian who is delighting in God and His work is evident. You can see it. You can see it in their lives. You can see it in their interactions and the way that they uh, just interact with the people in the church. So what are some ways that we can cultivate and stoke our affections for God so that we delight in Him and produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Maybe it's singing along to worship music that you love. Old hymns, new music, whatever, anything that's glorifying to God and proclaims the truth of His Word. Letting the lyrics, the truth contained in them, sink deeply into your heart, especially when you don't want to. Especially when you're not feeling particularly warm in your affections towards God. Maybe it's sitting down and having a conversation with a friend who loves the Lord and just being encouraged by the ways that God is working in that person's life, in that person's heart. The more we delight in God, the more we will see the fruit of his spirit work in our hearts. We don't have anything in ourselves to produce the holiness that God requires. So we work in putting to death the deeds of the flesh and bringing to life the fruit of the Spirit, not by our own effort, but only through the power of the Spirit. This is a position of continuous dependence upon God in all of our areas of life, and that's by design. One commentator put it this way. 
He said, since we cannot live our Christian lives independently of the Spirit, we ought never to make the attempt. We should constantly be looking to him for those things that we so much need, both the knowledge of what is right and the power to choose it. So instead of feeling an overwhelming burden of all that we have to do to do right, to make ourselves right with God, we can instead freely and joyfully join the work the Spirit is already doing in us, trusting him even as we continue to battle against the power of our flesh. And that brings us to our third point, freedom's struggle. Let's take a look back at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, so far we've highlighted Paul's distinction between these two contrasting realities, right? Life in the Spirit and life in the flesh. And he's placing these two up against each other and forcing his readers into this binary understanding of life. There are those who live by the flesh and there are those who live by the Spirit. Everyone falls into one of these two categories. And the distinction between them is the difference between life and death, salvation and condemnation, God's love or God's wrath. But as separate as these realities are for Paul, he also presents them as both actively working in the life of the believer at all times. Martin Luther used this famous Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, to describe this struggle in the believer's life. It's a Latin phrase that means we are simultaneously righteous and justified, but also still possess a broken, sinful nature. We are both saints and sinners. That's the tension that we as believers experience as we go throughout our lives. On the one hand, we have been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's given us a new heart that desires the things of God. But on the other hand, our sinful flesh still tempts us. It still leads us away from the things of God and into sin. Both are true of us from the moment we're converted until the moment we die. And I think Paul has this specific struggle in mind in verse 17, where he laments the influence of the flesh in keeping us from doing what we as new creations in Christ desire to do. At times, the flesh infringes upon our positive liberty to carry out the life in the Spirit. We want to pursue holiness. We want to pursue righteousness in our living and in our thinking, but our flesh fights back and tries its hardest to keep that from happening. But if we're honest, we're often content to allow our sin and our sanctification to sit side by side in our hearts. We try to have it both ways. We want to grow in holiness and more or less walk by the Spirit, but we also want to hold on to our pet sins at the same time. John Calvin described the problem with that approach this way. He says, There is no greater agreement between the natural inclinations of man and righteousness than between fire and water. There is no harmonious relationship between fire and water. They do not peacefully coexist within the same space. They are mutually exclusive. And the same is true of sin and righteousness in our hearts. If we ever desire the flame of righteousness to grow hotter and stronger in our hearts, then we can't be content to let the trickle of water continue to flow in. Have you ever tried to start or maintain a fire with wet wood? It's an exercise in futility and in getting smoke in your eyes. It doesn't work. It's not possible because they're mutually exclusive. But in John 15, Jesus says of his father, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Pruning plants gets rid of unproductive branches so that every part of the plant may be productive. It gets rid of that which is dead or dying so that the plant can replace it with something that is alive and that is fruitful. I don't think plants can feel pain, but if they could, I would imagine pruning to be a very unpleasant process. It's cutting off parts of you, but that's the point that the plant is better off for the pain, so to speak. I don't think plants can feel pain. But, 
It's better off. It's more productive. It's more alive than it was before. God, our loving Father, does that to us because he loves us. He desires us to bear fruit, and he has given us his spirit to do just that, but he prunes us to make sure that that which is dead or dying in us, the desires of the flesh, doesn't get in the way of that which is truly alive, life in the spirit. Putting sin to death is the process of God pruning the plants in his garden so that they would bear more fruit. And as difficult as this feels, putting sin to death in the life of a Christian is actually living in light of who you truly are. There's a fantasy book series by Andrew Peterson called The Wing Feather Saga. If you haven't read them, I would highly recommend it, even though I'm about to give away a moderately important plot point. In the second book, towards the end, one of the main characters is transformed from a human boy into a soldier of the enemy, who's a gray wolf with menacing yellow eyes, who's renamed something hideous in the service of his new master. His family rescues him from the enemy's army, but all he seems capable of doing now is attacking them, trying to tear them to shreds. They have to keep him bound with ropes so that he can't carry out the one desire that he seems to have, which is to kill them all. But they don't give up on him. Instead of fighting with him or trying to show him the error of his ways, they keep doing one simple thing. They tell him his name, his real name, who he really is, not who the lies of his heart are telling him he is. At first, it has no effect. All it does is make him more angry. He butts up against his constraints. He slashes out more and more. But slowly, over time, this continued repetition of his name begins to have an effect. At the very edge of his now yellow eyes, faint traces of their original blue start to show. At times, the wolf takes over, and he's lost to his family. But the moment they know they have him back is when, for the first time, he says his own name. And his eyes are blue. There is no yellow in them. Now, I don't want to spoil the rest of the book or the series, and I love the series, but that's a continual struggle he has through the rest of the series. The wolf does not disappear. It's still there, and at times, it tries to take over again. He has to fight against it time and time again, but he does that by reminding himself of who he really is, of his true name. So when you, when you feel the pull of the flesh tempting you to give in to your selfish desires, remember, that's not who you are anymore. You are a new creation. You are no longer in bondage to the flesh, but you have been set free. That's one way that we as a church can care for one another well. We point out sin in each other's lives, not out of hatred, but out of love out of a recognition that that sin belongs to the old self, to the flesh, to who we are not anymore, not to our calling to walk in the Spirit. Could we as a church have the humility not only to accept rebuke from our brothers and sisters, but to give it all in love for one another as we walk alongside each other in the Spirit? We can continue to help one another put to death the sins of the flesh because we are sure of our new identity in Christ, that we have been set free. And that comes only through the finished work of Christ. And that brings us to our fourth point, final point, freedom's victory. Verse 24 tells us where the real power for our transformation comes from. Paul says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This language should remind us of another famous verse earlier in Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Our sinful flesh has been crucified with Christ. It is dead to us, and we are dead to it, since we now live our lives in the power of the Spirit. We are new creations. The power that produces holiness in our lives is not our own effort. It's not our own goodness. It's not our own virtue. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in us. Resisting the flesh, one commentator says, is not about willpower, but the Spirit's empowerment. In fact, it's not even about our overcoming the desires of our flesh with the Spirit's help. Rather, the Spirit wins the victory and we march under his banner. Because the victory has already been won, the flesh need not have any power over us. Believe it or not, we never have to sin again. We will. We've already said our flesh is continuing to war against us, and in our sinfulness, we give in to it. But we never have to. We have been freed from the necessity of sin, freed from the power of sin, freed from the obligation to our flesh, and freed to live a life that is holy and pleasing to our God. Freed from the law, free from sin, free to obey, free to walk in the Spirit. The victory has been won once and for all. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Not our own effort, not our own striving. But therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Work, but because the victory has already been won, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We see echoes of that truth in verse 25 here in our passage. We who are in Christ have been given life by the power of the Spirit, and with that life comes an obligation to live in step with the Spirit. That truth simultaneously comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted. The proud have no reason to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit working in them. What do you have that you did not receive? Are you being transformed into a better version of yourself? No, you're being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, the only one who has reason to boast in his performance. If you're here this morning and you recognize that you've been trying to live life in your own power, trying to make yourself right with God, or on the other side thinking that you are so far gone that God could never love you, could never save you, hear the truth of the gospel this morning. You are more sinful than you know, but you are more loved by a holy God than you could ever imagine. And he made a way for your sin not to keep you from him anymore through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to be free this morning, free from feeling like you have to earn your place with God, free from feeling like there is nothing good that could ever come from your life, free to live in a way that pleases God, then come to Christ. It will require you to give up all of your sinful desires, all of your striving, all of the confidence that you have in your own ability. But brothers and sisters, that is what freedom looks like. Remember, as we said before, walking in the Spirit is a position of dependence. Jesus ties these ideas together in John chapter 15 where he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As difficult as it is to live a life of complete dependence upon God in every minute of every day, do you understand the freedom that that brings us? The Spirit will bring forth fruit in the lives of his people as we abide in Christ, the true vine. So for those who feel crushed, this morning, by how far, far short they fall from the holiness of a spirit-filled life, be encouraged. Since it's Christ's power working in us, it cannot fail. As Paul encouraged the Philippian church, he who began a good work in you will 
carry it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Since we are new creations, we have the ability to strive for holiness, and we should. God has called us to. We are free to live in a way that pleases God. But we also have the settled assurance that God will produce the fruit of his Spirit in us. We have the Spirit dwelling in us, and he will do the work that he has set out to do. God is not trying to sanctify you, but having a hard time because you're so sinful. God doesn't try to do anything. He is God. He does things. That which he sets out to do, he accomplishes. And what he has chosen to do through the power of the Spirit in us is to make us holy. And that which he has chosen to do will come to pass. So in the meantime, we abide in Christ. We live in the finished work on the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. The power of the law and the power of our flesh over us is finished. The securing of all that we need for life and godliness is finished. Why do we live as though it's not? Why do we live as though we still need to prove ourselves to God? It is finished. The flesh has been crucified with Christ. But unlike Jesus, the flesh is staying in the grave. What greater freedom can we have than those who were dead but have been made alive? Let us use that freedom to walk in the way that God would have us. Walking in the Spirit not only frees us from living in the flesh, but also frees us to live in a way that pleases God. May we live in the freedom of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the freedom that you have given us through your Spirit. Lord, that not only are we not bound by the constraints of the law or the desires of the flesh, but that we might live in a way that pleases you. What a privilege. What a joy that we have. Father, may we recognize that freedom and not use it to go back into sin, not use it for license, but use it to walk in the way that you have laid out for us. At times it feels too much, and we confess it is. Help us to remember that it is your spirit working in us. And that which you have begun, you will bring to completion. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.